0: What does it mean to be a dhamma parlor, Dharma dhamma protector? So uh, Sara mentioned this topic to me and I was sort of slightly taken aback because I always felt it's like the dhamma protects me rather than the other way around. But I, I, I take the point that it's important to, that there's something there to be cherished and protected and sustained. And uh, it's not just a matter of words. You know, we have all the words. We've got probably more than we can ever manage, (laughs) really. Uh, So I sort of boil it down. I think probably like many people, one gets touched by something, an image aspiration, somebody's presence, uh, a turn of phrase, or just a movement in the heart of uh, question and openness, and, and called satta, satta faith, and that's that's the initiator, that's the messenger of the Dharma, that's the first messenger that comes. I mean, you have the heavenly messages of aging, sickness, and death, but you don't, you're not able to really get fruition from that. They're the ones that are telling you the messages of of the world or the messages of samsara. The fourth messenger, the messenger of the holy person, is the messenger who brings the message of faith. Uh, Saddha, openness, possibility, entry into something vaster, touched by something more blessed, able to access that, able to be received by that able to process some of that able to let it grow and possibly even to transmit it and this sadar is not the like one moment it's it's, it's there it has to be there all the time or it's there as an underlying underpinning possibility as we go through the ocean rocky waves of ups and downs of success and failure and despond and rage and confusion and joy and aspiration you know it's it's a satar underneath that that's the current that's keeping you going it means you don't bail out you don't say oh this is it i've got it nailed (laughs) you stay in that ocean and you travel through the waves or you let the waves travel through you and you don't the way we we lose faith is we either anchor onto dogma or a position, or you know, or we just give up. We bail out, and so to keep going essentially is an aspect of faith. Um, <coughs> and what's that? You know, it's that which touched you, and the being touched, and being summoned, being called, being turned, and. You don't know where, but you just know there is a turning, Mm -hmm. and there's always that turning possible. So when we come to trying to package this up, there's the heart practice, there's devotion, which is the ongoing uh, commitment to heart, to heart not as a matter of sentiment, That heart is a matter of courage. Heart is a matter of humility. Heart is a matter of embracing, embracing experience. Heart is a matter of uh, non-differentiation, transcending differences. And that's devotion. Does that? Nothing does that but what we call devotion. It's a suffusive quality. It has no edges to it, no boundaries, no lines. No distinctions and yet or with that there's got to be discipline which is definitely about lines definitely about you know this not that definitely about distinction and the two together discipline devotion discipline devotion devotion discipline says yes 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 but this point now, Yes, 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 but just this now and train yourself to be a vessel and a vehicle for this Dhamma. There's the faith that you can do it, the faith that it's called you, the faith that you can enter it and it can enter you and the responsibility to train oneself to be a vessel for that, to be a vehicle for that. And this is where we get sati, obviously, mindfulness. Um, the five indriya, you could say, are the Dhamma protectors. Faith, uh, energy, um, sati, mindfulness, samadhi, unification, bhajna, discernment. You could say those are the Dhamma protectors. And yet, as words, fine, but as direct, real experiences, in the direct level, you know, You have to first of all start with faith because that's where the heart rises. It's no longer a matter of an idea or even something that I I can, you know, decide I'm going to do it. (laughs) You know, like I guess, like most people, when you get that message of faith, you think, what should I do? How can I tune into this? Which is reasonable, but energy. The right kind of energy is actually something that uh, has to be uh, listened to the right voice. Uh, and conventionally speaking, our energy is normally hooked up to our, our will, and our will is hooked up to our, our attention, to what I can see, to what I think is important, to where I think I need to go. My will is hooked up to certain prejudices or assumptions. This will make me into this. This is where I'm to go. And the results of practice will be like this. I am like this. I want to be like that. And so our will is hooked up already to pre-existing biases. And that's inevitable. We don't start out clean. And so the, f- the need to, to turn one's energy to faith. You know, what sustains the faith? You know, uh, the heart. It takes a certain surrender uh, discipline to put aside the impetuous and the compulsive nature of the will, soften the will. doesn't mean we relinquish it, but we train it to follow where the heart rises. Not where the brain surges or where the passions rush or where the good ideas come bustling up, as you probably recognise, you know, once you sit and do some meditation, all the ideas, (laughs) all the memories, all the notions and all that come up, the planning, you know. So it takes discipline. And ter- turning turning the mind mm. now you know by and large in certainly most most of the buddhist traditions that i've been in it's fairly i would say masculine it's uh, linear it's uh, external uh, I just like to leave those words just fairly, um, not with too much implications. I don't, when well, masculine, I don't mean men, although men naturally it tends to look like that. But the linear way of this and then that, and then there's five of these and six of that, and it's a straight line. You know, it's a straight line. You do three of these, you get four of these, you get nine of the levels of that, and then you come to this, that, and the other. It's a certain linear, sequential quality to it. Yeah. and uh, and so the you come and Oh right, okay. I'll do this and get that, and I'll practice this for so many hours, and I'll do this and then that and that that for most of us, I imagine, I speak for myself. For myself, that's kind of the way I entered, um, and it's very much hooked up to to a non devotional sense, to a, um, a willed sense. A sense of something I know where I'm going, and I'm going there to that point, and these are the steps to take me there. And with that, uh, which is by no means void of value, certainly you know, you develop attention, you develop focus, you develop patience, you develop a lot of good qualities, but it is slightly arrogant <laughs> in an un- unconscious way. <laughs> like, who? <laughs> You know, who's, who's the doer? Who's doing all this? Uh, 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 and in fact, the, the, of course, that's it's not a minor minor point, because particularly in any tradition, spiritual tradition at all, but most, most emphatically in Buddhism, one of the main obstacles is the sense of self. The, the doer, the one who gets and makes, it's called bhava becoming. It's not an entity at all. But it's a particular infiltration of a certain tidal flow to become, to have a sequence, to get somewhere, to drive on, you know, and, that, um, and to own, own experience, to hold it and accumulate it. So we get a kind of rather mechanistic attitude towards dharma, And, uh, I'd say, you know, I think this is something that you know what I advise you to be careful about. You don't build Dhamma, you grow it. And growing is both transitive and intransitive. In other words, you plant the seed, you don't really grow Dhamma. Dhamma grows and you attend to it to to provide the conditions for it to grow. Yeah. Like you don't you say I, I grow I grow potatoes or I grow apples well yeah but you know <laughs> that's one way of talking about it but obviously you don't you do and you don't you plant the tree you plant the seed you know you guard it against uh, animals knocking it down you water it uh, maybe you pray to it or whatever and it grows. <laughs> And it grows at its own rate, and it grows sprouts branches where it sprouts them. It doesn't sprout them. It doesn't grow symmetrically. It doesn't just come up on demand. It's completely um, uh, un unbiddable. (laughs) And yet you provide the conditions, and you provide the attention, and you provide the uh, interest, and it will grow in fruitful soil. So to protect the Dharma. You want to sense both as something that you can love rather than do. And if you love Dharma, you will, by the act of love, you will protect it. The act of, of love itself is protective. It's not, I love something, therefore. The act of love is protection. It is that wrapping the heart around. It is that embracing, that integration, and that sense of opening to and surrendering to. I don't mean surrender in a weak way. I mean following it. You know? That is the um, the way in which we integrate this localized entity that seems to be me, these localized energies with their Particular formations and inclinations and patterns. I I integrate that into the great, great flowing energy form of Dharma mm, through through that love, mm. love in this sense, devotion. If you don't, and you only love it, you can only love something you, you touch. You you can you can appreciate it as an idea, but you love it when you touch it. When it touches you. And this is why faith is so important, because that's the touch. Yeah. That's the touch. That's the, the arrest. When we're going one way and you pause, something touched you. What's that? I don't know, I just feel disoriented, but maybe that. Something touched you. And even further, you love it and you appreciate it because you can embody it. Uh, and this is where you, you get the direct experience of Dharma. Is always has to be embodied before it can be direct. This is where it starts to be beyond dispute. You can't dispute the pulses in your body. <laughs> you can't dispute the flush in your nervous system. You can't dispute the cramping in your guts when you're frightened and uptight. You can't argue with it. You can't argue with that rising of faith that that begins. The Dharma begins with it, so this is beyond the intellect has to just bow, bow out on that one. Say okay, yeah. When when it when it touches you like that, yeah, and then in, in embodiment, in a way, it's the prelude to both discovering a body that we didn't even know we had. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously, as you well know, in many Buddhist texts, bodies get a pretty bad rap, you know, bag of skin, 32 parts, aging, sickness, death, corpse, you know, bones scattered all over the place, maggoty thing. (laughs) 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 And yet the Buddha is saying, You don't touch the deathless unless you have mindfulness immersed in the body. You cannot touch the deathless without mindfulness immersed in the body. It says something, I quote, isn't word perfect, but just as all the rivers go into the ocean, then all aspects of wisdom converge into mindfulness of the body. Right? Uh, And the Sutta Kaya Gati Sutta, which is the mm, 119th, I think, of the Majjhima Nikaya, is translated as mindfulness of body, but it isn't quite what it means. Kaya is body, sati is mindfulness, gata means gone into, immersed in the body, right? So now you're looking at something, what is it? You're not like looking at the body, though that's part of it, there's an immersion into this, what I guess nowadays we call a somatic experience. A mm. uh, somatic experience, which is this flushing, something that's so obvious, so apparently part of our orientation, so drastically uh, shaken by illness, so wounded by grief, so heated by rage, so able to be resilient, yeah. so grounding when it's there and so miserable if it's lost. The primary form of intelligence that we came into this birth with before we could think one thought and mutter one word and even really know what was day and night. That was right there, that, that God is here. This was this was the descent from the, you know, where you call cosmos into locality, from the unspecified into location came into this, and there's something incredibly potent about this. This is where the messenger arrives, yeah. and so it's mindfulness, the third indriya. Keep your mindfulness immersed in the body. This doesn't mean you've, you're focusing on the sensations in your fingertips or your ears or but all the time if you want to guard the dhamma protect the dhamma and love the dhamma feel it in your body and the dhamma then is not not an ideas or words or neat expositions it's the immediate flexion of joy and love and uh, Giddiness of disorientation and the sickness that you, you feel, feel sickened by brutality and corruption. Something just shrinks and something moves forward to offer, however, you can in compassion and service, and you feel it rising through you and you follow it. And this somatic presence, this means that. When you're relating to that, you're not necessarily focusing on the movements of sensation, but on the intelligence, on what the embodied intelligence is telling you. Now, if we take, if we expound a little bit, I don't know how much time we have, but how much you want to bear with me. <laughs> but you can say, take an example. We're living at the time of the Buddha in fifth century. BCE India, right? There's no screens, there's no billboards, there's no electricity, right? There's no telecommunication. There's very little writing, right? Where do you get your intelligence from? There's no schools, right? Where does your intelligence come from? What is intelligence? Well, if you want to develop intelligence, you go into the forest. That's what they did, they go into the forest, because when you're in the forest you cannot be stupid. If you're stupid, you will not survive. And this is not a matter of having great ideas about forests and trees and forestry, and it's about waking up, here we are, and any moment there's a possibility of death. What happens? Everything in you comes alive, and you're both intensely or very alert, and you're not focused on any one thing in particular. You can see, but you're not focused on seeing, because if you focus too much on what you're seeing, you might not hear the tiger behind you. So you don't you see, but you don't see. You see, but you're not. You don't go out into it. You stay embodied. You hear. You hear the sound of the creatures. But also you're aware of the feet beneath you, so you don't fall down a pit or trip over roots. So you're not you here, but you're not in hearing either. you hear, but you're not in hearing. You see, but you're not in seeing. A fragrance catches your nose, but you don't follow it. You notice it. Because if you follow that, you could, again, miss out. So all the six senses are there, and you're aware of them, but you're not in any of them. And you're not shutting them down either, right? So this is where are you? Your mindfulness immersed in the body. That's the academy. Forest. Sure, you learn. You learn the skills of survival. You learn the skills of resilience. You learn the skills of. Looks like we just have to wait. Wait the storm out. No point getting upset about it. We just have to wait until things get clearer you learn hunch you learn guess you learn intuition things that unfortunately so many of us have had drummed out of us by academia and uh, social manipulation we've been inducted into a into a linear logistical world and we've lost touch with the real intelligence of birth, death and liberation. And that's what you learn in the forest So this was the abiding place okay Now the genius of the Buddha was to be able, to both open to that and to maintain forest discipline, restraint, respect for creatures great and small, Mm. pleasant or unpleasant, respect for supernatural creatures, demons, yuckers, respect, not cowing down, not bowed, but respectful, spacious discipline to maintain that sati immersed in the body so we don't lunge out into our passions or our ideas or our should-bes and if we are touched by dharma and feel the uplift of dharma in the body and sustain it there then one lives balanced which The mind itself finds it very difficult. The intellect finds it almost impossible to achieve balance. It's always moving, chugging along. Only the body can know balance, and it does it immediately. And when the body finds balance, the heart... Senses that and is, is quiet and steady and comfortable because it feels protected. It feels held carefully, not cramped, not constricted. This is the skill of restraint. It's not it's not a lovely word, uh, but the word samwara means something like gathered together, gathered in, a, a thorough gathering, a thorough worthy gathering in samwara. Uh, And so the way that it's expressed in the external linear teachings is very much a restraint from. But if you look at it in internal quality, what I call the internal, the esoteric or the inner teachings or the the feminine teachings, it's a gathering into something that is non-linear and uh, is not conceivable, but is directly felt and suffusive. We call this Heart, well, you know, spirit, if you like, um, intelligence, if you like, mm. awareness, if you like. <laughs> because with now, once you get into the world of words, you can just, you know, see what works for you. <laughs> right? And the result of that is my, is, is Samadhi. Hmm? It's to, be, it's to be encouraged. Now, I think this is really quite pivotal. If you follow, if you want to experiment, if you want to just consider what I've said about cultivating mindfulness in the body and the, and the non-focused quality of it. You're not focusing on a point. Your attention is wide open. Restrained, collected internally. Now, if you want to play with that, work with that, which uh, um, that's what I do, Yeah, you'll find that you, you're certainly going to encounter many of the obstacles that we have to do our journey across. Energy is going strange, flat, dull. Oh, God. How long has that been? Only three minutes? Oh no, I've been in for surely an hour. No, it's who is the clock. Oh God, no. Flat, flattened, you know. Or just so speedy, so buzzing. You know, I can't hardly sit down. My mind's chattering like a crazy monkey. You know? And, uh, you know, just the, the, the dysfunction of, of the nervous system, which has come through... You know, whatever it is, dope, Netflix, commuting, rushing around, looking at too much stuff. You know, just media saturation, completely. You know, sending the body engine into a total spin without even realising it, and being, we quite like it. You know, <laughs> you get addicted to the stuff <laughs> until you have to get the hangover when you sit and meditate. You get the hangover, your mind just being, your somatic system being like a car crash, and I think I'd out four or five years first it's just actually getting sort of like somewhere near normal um, you know in terms of, of, a, of a, uh, some degree of, of collectedness that wasn't just gripped hard mm-hmm. so you have to travel through that and that requires faith and so we say what do, how do you do that well first thought you chant because when you chant the resonances of the sound that you're not just saying some nice ideas although the ideas are suitable that's the external chanting the internal chanting is the resonances that suffuse the somatic body and actually begin to affect the physiology so you can sense that resonances moving in that place where faith has touched And it's not, okay, it touched me in my left rib. Just take the anatomical map of the body out of the picture for a moment. It may occur in your heart chakra, that's the obvious place. Um, But don't concern yourself with looking for a physical place, just the sense of embodiment and how something can light or something can shrink in that. So when we, we chant, you chant, touch into that place where the faith is, and you warm it through resounding there and that will begin to to spread through the entire form and it helps to level your energy it's like it's like doing qigong but now using your voice um i I need all the help i can get Um, so this is a sonorous quality and it's suffusive And this is this suffusive quality, which is the hallmark of the way that Dhamma, uh, esoteric Dhamma, is the inner quality of Dhamma, the felt quality of Dhamma, the way it moves, it moves through suffusion, which means it saturates and it permeates and it spreads. That's the way it's always been. The way Dhamma has got transmitted through so many cultures is because people get touched in their hearts. It's not just a library issue anymore. It's not just academic. There's a a touching, and that suffuses. And you can see that's going, it's always been that way, it always will be that way, the real thing. Now, if we're cultivating sati in that way, restraint of the senses, not going out into them, not closing them down, the nature of focus is changed quite radically. It's no longer a focus I will focus on this particular point. It's a focus which is a sense of that which is appropriate. The heart finds the appropriate form because it's intelligent. (laughs) It's not like I have to tell it what to do. If you get the embodied and you have faith, that embodied quality, as the heart sits in it and meets in it, that will find its own focus. And this is perhaps a long-winded way of putting it. But that focus, it's difficult to, to say <laughs> uh, because it's not really measured in conventional terms. But You get a sense of presence, spaciousness, which feels comfortable. It's measured tonally rather than linearly. In other words, it's not measured in terms of spatial dimension, it's measured in tonal terms. There is a place where there's a steady resonant quality, and you're in that. And you can then cultivate with that and start to spread your awareness so as it widens. And this is the suffusive experience. It begins to widen, and you can feel your external body Picking that up, and you can move through the external form into the space around you. And this is another story, you know. Um, how do we, where do memories come from? Where do ideas come from? Where, why do I suddenly remember her or him or them? Well, because your chitta is suffusing its karmic location, right? That's what it does, it suffuses its karmic environment. Right. That's why you remember this and you remember that, and you think this and you think that, where do those ideas come from? They're they're in the karmic location of your chitta, and as you open and suffuse, you're moving that blessing, that purity, that cleansing, that forgiving, that straightening, that loving, that firming, you're moving that energy through that sphere, and it begins to sort things out, steady things out. The result of this is samadhi. Uh, so, you know, there are two two practices, if you like to call them practices, uh, in which this juicy this experience is pointed to. One is the experience of piti sukha, which is the doorway to samadhi. And piti is a sense of refreshing, it is somatic energy. There's a, there's a you could say an emotional aspect to it. One feels emotionally uplifted, but it's a somatic shimmering. This is pity, and it's associated with a sense of ease. So it's rather like the the, the quality of getting a tight boot off your foot, suddenly you thinking, ah. <laughs> it's rather like that, or getting a heavy weight off your back. You think, ah. So it's not so much an excitement of addition. It's the suffusiveness of the liberation from obstruction and then instead of the suffusing. And then the Buddha says, as this is deepened and steadied through discipline so we don't get blown away with the excitement of it, we don't go giddy with it, you stay immersed in the body and you hold it within this body so it doesn't just spin out into the many, many psychic realms that we can travel to and it's, you know, This cosmos is vast and there's plenty of psychic places you can go to and some of them are interesting, useful, some of them are very dangerous. So the Buddha says stay embodied. And that's a discipline because energies are fascinating, energies are enticing, energies are exuberating. He says actually you don't want the excitement, you want the steadying easeful quality and he says There is, till there's not one part of your body that's not saturated, drenched and suffused with the pleasure and ease that is born of this process. This disengagement from the will, the intellect and the corruptions. From the becoming drive. So you're beginning to... to, to, uh, ameliorate that drive and of course then this is something that's extremely um, verifying you know you can't just brush that one off and your body's not going to brush it off main practice of discipline then is to to discern hold that steadily this is where Panya comes in fifth great protector okay kiddo you know you got a little bit of samadhi there okay very nice let's not get excited about that let's not make some self out of that let's just great you know other people have been here before when you've got it you think like wow this is it (laughs) but the discipline says this is a state you know it's that cool quality says this is a state to be reviewed as this was given this is offered. This is condition. It's a condition that alleviates the hindrances and the obstructions. Don't misuse it. So we use that for satisfying the heart. We use it for terminating the major obstructions. The major instructions are the imbalanced energies, the dislocated intellect, which is just can't stay on your shoulders for a minute. It just has to buzz off somewhere else. So you're, you're beginning to get your head back on your shoulders, right? So you, you know, so this begins to remove these major corruptions: the, the energetic mangle, the dislocated um, person who is all, all over the place, uh, the reasoning mind spinning out all the time, dislocate. The, or, or remedy um, the self-oriented will mm. yeah. which sees things my way yeah. and the self the, the limitations of the self-oriented will mm. even if it's trying to do good it's trying to do things according to the way I see them and um, for this we're just starting to maybe there's an intelligence here Will operate rather better without me getting in the way. And it doesn't mean a complete denial of responsibility, just my respons- responsibility here is to learn to train the chitta, the heart, to hear the voice of the self and the person. Try to understand what they're really saying in their anxiety or their impatience or their frustration or their confusion and settle it. So there can be wisdom Then can proceed in an unbiased way. So in protecting the Dharma, you're protecting yourself. In protecting yourself, you're protecting other people. Uh, you protect other people, you know, not just people, of course, creatures. Protecting truth. And truth is an extremely endangered species at this time. You're protecting balance. Balance is almost lost altogether. Uh, you're protecting um, faith and resilience and the things that keep people that make keep people human. Uh, and this is the way you cultivate. Now, if we can restrain or collect ourselves in terms of body. Uh, yeah, so the body's not running around, it's, you, you're with it, you're moving with it, then you've got some leverage on restraining the thinking mind, restraining the speech, you know, what, what's appropriate to say at the right time, at the right place, to the right person, in a way that can be heard. Uh, yeah. because uh, another powerful property about embodiment is because it's focused on the sense of touch it is always mutual that is, if I touch something it touches me I can see things that don't see me I can hear things that don't hear me but I can't touch anything that doesn't touch me so if, if my way of experiencing the way of, of meeting experience is based upon that mutuality of contact. How could I be abusive? How could I be arrogant if I really collect into that into that intelligence? How could I feel separate? How can I feel you know, Walled in, uh, or lost, and if that isn't happening, you know what, what's what is there, and yet there's a discipline. You know, I think um, what comes to mind, as sometimes these things do, is I remember going to uh, a Sufi. Uh, dervish session a few years ago, an invitation. And I bring that up because in a way it does encapsulate in an image some of the themes I'm touching into. And the session was in some ways very simple. We who were invited in took our places in silence and then the the, uh, dervishes uh, went through their ritual. Not to explain everything in detail, but every member of that, I think there were eight maybe every dervish, some were men, some were women, had this kind of uniform white cloak on and a hat and baggy suit, white pants, and a white skirt, and they as they came. They had to pass through a sort of a gate formed by two people who stood and they passed up through this gateway. As they passed through they began spinning on their feet, turning. And like planets orbiting the Sun, each was turning in their own orbit and yet all were part of the great orbit around the Sun. Right? So you've got this image of the, every individual spinning on their own axis and yet their own axis was centering around the great axis of the great sun in the center. There's nothing in the center. It was empty. So they were turning rather like planets around a star. And as they turn, it's quite you know fast, then they had one hand up, which is to receive the blessings, one hand down, which is to direct it to the earth. So they're turning like that. Right hand up, left hand down. They're turning like a spinning top. As they turn, the skirts flared out. The skirts were weighted. So the hem of the skirt was weighted. So they they flew out, the skirts flew out, about knee height, to form each had a circle around them. And the skirts, you know, another two and a half feet, added another, five foot to, to the diameter, the real diameter of the person and then spinning. And, and of course in that turning you can't see the faces because they're blurred and they can't see either. They can't see what's going on because they're, they're, the vision is blurred. They just know they're in this spinning and they turn eight of them together moving around continually And no one touches another one. Because if that weighted skirt touches another weighted skirt, the whole thing flies apart. So if they accidentally collide, the whole thing falls apart. They did this turn several times. Everybody in their own axis, unable to see in that form, and yet uh, acting in harmony and in unity. And the, the, the reason for the dance is the celebration of the divine. We're calling divine down with the right hand and turning it towards the earth with the left hand. That's, that's the image. And the, the person is the, just the, the conduit, you could say. And it's a, a very good example for devotion, complete devotion total giving oneself to the blessed, the dharma extreme discipline to maintain that position, that posture Um, full attention and selflessness in which everybody's on their own you cannot contact another person if you do, that, the dance will break up everyone's on their own and yet they're all connected to the dance they're all moving around in that circle together we're connected, we're separate we're individuals we are part of a unity right? from the linear point of view it doesn't make sense from the heart point of view it's exactly right Yeah. So, this is the inner quality of the Dharma, and uh, the external qualities of the Dharma, the teachings, the words, the things we can see, are indeed marvelous and praiseworthy. But the inner quality transcends all of that, and then there's no divisions and no comparisons and no better and worse in it. We're all following our own orbit in harmony this is how we really turn dharma into sangha so um, that's what came up for me this time round Uh, so uh, thank you for listening